You know, I hope those are more than lyrics we sing on a screen. I hope that's not just a a catchy song that we like, but that is the truth of who God is. And I I would assume, I, I would bet that probably many of us, if not all of us, we have areas in our life where we need God to come through, where we need that way maker, that miracle worker, that promise keeper. And and I wonder if we actually believe the words that we sing, that God is capable, that he is able, that he is mighty, or have we lost that? You see, the nation of Israel, they've been oppressed slaves for 400 years, 400. And they had given up on God. They had forgotten that he was a way maker, that he is a way maker, that he will perform miracles, and that he always keeps his promises. And what they didn't see is that God was raising up a leader who would come up, come in and show up to deliver them from freedom. He had a plan in mind. And I'm telling you, God has that same plan in mind for you. And may we just not sing words on Sunday, but may they resonate and be true in our hearts today. And so as we go to open God's word, that is powerful, that is active and alive. I hope you believe that. God's word can change your life. And today we're going to open it and read it and study it and allow God's spirit to do what only his spirit can do. Let's pray before him. God, thank you. God, there are areas big and small in our lives where we need you to come through. And today we trust and we believe in your timing. We believe that you are able and you are capable. And we believe that even when we don't see it or sense it or feel it, you are working. And so we praise you for that. Man, we're excited to dig into your word today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can go ahead and grab a seat at all of our locations. Thanks for hanging out with us here at Northridge Church and and let me welcome you. Thanks for being here. And I want you to know it's a big deal that you logged on your your device, your television, or you showed up to one of our campuses here at Northridge Church. We don't take that lightly, and we're very thankful for that. And so welcome, welcome home. Thanks for being here. We're excited to have you. No matter where you're joining us from, whether it's Webster, Rochester, or our online campus, man, we're thankful that you're here. And we've been in, in, in the middle of this series called Moses, where we're studying a very influential leader a leader of the nation of Israel, we just kind of looking at his life and wrestle with things that we can relate to, wrestle with a story that was written thousands of years ago, but yet it, it still has impact on our lives personally today. And if you haven't been with us, maybe you missed a week, let me just catch up where we've been. We started as Moses as a baby, a little baby, and really he should have been dead, but God protected him. Not only did he protect him, but he gave him an advantage as he's adopted into the, the family of Pharaoh. And then this baby grew up. He's about 40 years old, and he feels the oppression of his people. He doesn't identify as an Egyptian, even though he's adopted into the Egyptian culture and family. He identifies as a Hebrew, an Israelite, and his people have been in bondage, slavery, and he feels that oppression. And so he acts on his own accord, and it fails miserably. 
So God sends him away from Egypt to ultimately fill the gap of his calling in his life, but his readiness. And so as a shepherd, God prepares him and molds him into the leader he needs to be. And from here on out, we're, we're, we're going to look really at Moses as the leader of the nation of Israel. You see, the first two weeks were God preparing him to be the person he needed to be. And can you, can you believe that? In, in two weeks, we covered 80 years of Moses' life. I'm glad you're as, pressed as I, impressed as I am. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. 80 years. Think about this. We know Moses as a hero. It took 80 years to get him for 40 years. He lived to be 120. And most of his life was preparing him to be the leader. You see, most of us, we want to be the leader. But we're not willing to go through the 80-year process, Right? So now we're going to look at Moses, and, and today we're going to look at one of the most monumentous moments in the history of the nation of Israel, a, a moment that they would come back to regularly in their future, but what we're going to realize is it was just a huge setup for the most monumental moment in all of history. And so Moses, he's a shepherd, God calls him, he comes back to Egypt to deliver the nation of Israel out of bondage, and we pick it up in Exodus chapter 5, it says this, after Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is that the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And so here Moses comes back from Midian. He, he stands before Pharaoh, and he, he basically commands him, hey, God says you need to let his people go. And Pharaoh responds, he's like, listen, I have no clue who your God is. Don't really care, because my answer is no. I'm not, I'm not going to let your people go. And, and if you put yourself in, in Pharaoh's shoes for a second, you can imagine Pharaoh is a very powerful guy. Probably the most powerful guy in, 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 this, in these circumstances now. And he looks at Moses like, how dare you? How do you have the audacity to come into my empire and my kingdom and ask me to do something? I own these people. The Israelites are mine. I'm not giving them up. And so he responds to Moses' claim by making it worse for Israel. Verse 6, it says, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. And so here Moses is this, this leader. He steps on the scene and, and things get worse. So not only is Pharaoh ticked at Moses, but now the nation of Israel, slaves, their work gets harder because they have to go collect the straw to make bricks and their quota hasn't been reduced. And so Israel not only is frustrated with Moses, but so is Pharaoh. And you can imagine Moses is probably like, okay, God, what's happening here? Listen, I got it the first time. I did it on my own, and I understand why it failed. But you, you said you were coming with me this time, and it doesn't feel any different. Like, what's going on, God? Why are you doing this to me? In fact, Moses asked that question in verse 22. It says, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. And this, this kind of makes sense. If you're, you're following the, the natural progression of Moses' life, like, 
God, why, why did you bother sending me if it was just going to be the same as the first time I went? Like, God, what are you doing and why are you doing it? And, and that question is probably the most common question God ever gets. Why? In fact, I, I would bet that probably all of us have asked God that question. Why? Why, God? And let, let, me, let me give you some examples of that. Why, God, did you let my mom have cancer? God, why did you let my son or daughter die? God, why did we have to navigate this miscarriage? Why does my spouse treat me this way, God? Why did my dad abandon us? God, why aren't you coming through? We've probably all been where Moses is. And here's what's crazy is Moses is audibly called by God. God speaks directly to him. He says, hey, I want you to go and deliver the nation of Israel out of bondage. And it's not really going well. Why, God? Why? And I think we get where Moses is at, but God says, hey, here's what I want you to say to the nation of Israel. Chapter 6, it says, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And so God tells Moses to tell the nation of Israel, they're frustrated with him, hey, good news is on the horizon. Like, hey, God is going to set you free. And you would think that people who have been enslaved for 400 years, this would be the exact message they would want to hear. Hey, help is on the way. Things are going to get better. Like God's going to set you free. You think that would be like, yes, we've been waiting for this moment. But remember, it's been 400 years. They've probably heard this message before at some point in their life. Hey, God's going to free us. Remember his promise. Yeah, we remembered it the last 200 years, and it's got us nowhere. And so they're losing hope. On God, this is ultimately not a referendum on Moses' leadership. It's really a referendum on God. They don't buy God and his promises. And and look how they respond. Verse 9, it says this, Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. So he's just like, come on, Moses, we've heard this before. Just leave us alone. Let us be slaves. That's what we are. It's what we'll always be. And so Moses' leadership is not really going really well at the beginning. It's not probably what he pictured in his mind of how how awesome it was going to be to be a leader. And there's a couple things up front in this story that I want us to see. The the first one is this. When God calls you to something, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I don't know why we have followed this narrative or we've believed this lie that we just believe in Christianity that when when God is on our side or when we follow God or we live in obedience to God or we do what his word says, that God's just going to make a beautiful, smooth, rose-covered path for our lives. Right? Like, hey, I surrendered my life to Jesus. Why are bad things happening in my life? This makes no sense, God. Why? Why? It's because we, we've fallen trapped to a lie that, that we somehow believe when we believe in God that our life is just going to be awesome and perfect and beautiful. But if you study the Bible and you look at people who, who chose to follow Jesus, usually their life got hard and difficult. 
Many people gave up their life to follow Jesus. They, had, they walked through trials and tribulations and opposition. And why would we think that we would be any different? Why do we think that when God calls us to something, that it's just going to be easy? We get this magical easy button. When life gets hard, don't worry, God's going to show up and make everything good. That's how we view God. At least that's the God we want. But that's not who God is. God knows what's best for us. And, and it's not going to be easy. Moses is, is, is discovering this. Because God is the very one who told him to go. And he's realizing this journey is going to be hard. There's going to be bumps along the way. I'm going to face opposition. But God has called me to it, and it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. The second thing I think we see is really revolves around this word leadership. Very you know, popular word in our culture today. And I, I think what Moses Moses' first steps in leadership teaches us is that leadership is earned. I, I think when it comes to this word leadership, I think we've, we, we, we've dropped the ball, we've missed it a little bit, because most of us, we, we believe leadership is based out of position or authority or power. Right, if I have the, the position of power, I get to tell people what to do, therefore I'm the leader. And that's not leadership. Leadership is ultimately influence, and leadership is given, and it's earned. And Moses is, is learning this to navigate this because he steps on the scene. God has declared him the leader, but Israel isn't ready to follow him. Why? Because he hasn't earned the right to lead them yet. He hasn't walked through the storm with them. He hasn't navigated it. And, and many of you are, are leaders. You have influence over people. Many of you want to be leaders, and you're wondering why people won't follow you. It's because, here's my, here's my challenge, whether you're old or young, if you want to be a leader, give people a reason to follow you. Don't just expect it. Moses has to walk through this where he earns the right to lead the nation of Israel. And I get this because four years ago, I said yes to becoming the lead pastor of Northridge Church. And out of my position, out of what my position gave me. It gave me power. It gave me the ability to make decisions. I was, quote unquote, the boss of the organization. I could do, at some level, what I, what I thought was necessary. But that doesn't mean anybody is going to follow me. I had to earn that right. I'm still earning that right. And that comes through relationships and equity and time. If you want people to follow you, give them a reason to follow you. Moses is learning that. The third thing we see early in the story is, is we can't lose confidence in God's words when we don't see his works. So many of us fall trapped to this. Israel did. They knew God's words. They knew he promised that he would make them into a great nation. Remember week one, he promised Abram that he would make his, his, his line into a great nation. That he would bless those who would bless them and he would curse those who cursed them. Israel knows God's words but they're not believing them because they don't see the evidence of them. God, where are you? You've abandoned us. And many of us get to this place where our relationship with God is this ebb and flow. If I see the works of God, I believe in God. When I don't see the works of God, I doubt God. And our faith has to be more solid than that. Our faith has to be strong enough. When we don't see God working, we're still banking on the fact that he's going to. We don't give up on God, even when we feel like God has given us up on us. That's a rock-solid faith. Many of us don't have that. Because we believe, uh, we live in this pendulum where God is working, I'm believing. And when God isn't, and I can't see it, and I can't feel it, I'm doubting. 
So here Moses is, the leader of the nation of Israel. They're not buying him. Pharaoh's ticked at him. And so he stands before Pharaoh and he says, let the people go. Pharaoh says no. And so Moses issues a warning to Pharaoh. Verse 3, it says this, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. And here's the warning. He says, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. So Moses looks at Pharaoh and he says, listen, you might not know who God is, but you're about to. You might not have seen this God work. Guess what? It's coming. And let me warn you, Pharaoh, if you continue to say no to what God demands of you, you're going to see the power and the might of God because he's going to bring some plagues and he's going to bring some death. And you will feel and you will know who he is. And that's exactly what happens. Exodus chapter 6 all the way to Exodus chapter 10, God brings nine plagues. And what we see in those nine plagues is this cyclical journey between Moses and God and Pharaoh. A plague comes, Moses, God uses Moses to, to bring a plague, Pharaoh's heart gets hardened, and he says no. In fact, let me walk you through the first nine plagues. The first one was blood, uh, water turned into blood. The second, frogs. The third, lice. Fourth, flies. Number fifth, the fifth one was uh, livestock dying. Six, boils. Seven, hail. Eight, locust. And nine, darkness. Can you imagine that? I mean, we're talking about like a, a couple frogs jumping around. We're talking about an infestation of lice and frogs and flies. Like, wow. Talk about annoying. Talk about ridiculous. Talk about crazy. Like, can you imagine that? It actually sounds a little bit like 2020, honestly. <laughs> and we got murder hornets and wildfires and COVID-19. Who knows what the next plague is coming in 2020? Wow. And here's some interesting facts about these first nine plagues. The first three affected everybody. Israel and Egypt, they all felt the power of God. But then four through nine only impacted the Egyptians. So God, in, in, in the final couple plagues, God makes a clear distinction between Israel and Egypt. The first four plagues, Pharaoh chose to harden his own heart, to become mad and angry. But the five through nine, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And what's interesting about the first nine plagues is they don't achieve the ultimate goal. I mean, although they were crazy and amazing, they don't get to the end game of what God's trying to do because Pharaoh continuously says no. In fact, this didn't surprise Moses. Moses wasn't shocked by this because God predicted it. Exodus chapter four, it says, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So this didn't shock Moses. Wasn't taken by surprise. He knew Pharaoh was going to get angry and his heart was going to be hardened. But what we can't miss is what the first nine plagues did do. You see, the, the plagues established a couple things. The first one was the reputation of God. One thing that we often forget about when we read Exodus is this is at the very beginning of, of life and humanity. Israel and Egypt don't really know a lot about God. He's kind of still new to people. And here God, through miracles and, and wonders and his might and strength, what he does for everybody on the scene is they get a picture of how powerful and how mighty this God is. 
They get to see it with their own eyes. They're getting a better understanding of who God is and his reputation. And these events wouldn't just impact the people who were present that day. Generations to come would talk about what God did here. Because God is establishing who he is. I mean, this would be at the top of God's resume for centuries to come. In fact, this is what God says in Exodus 11. He says, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you. Why? So that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. You see, God wanted everybody to know who he was. The second thing that these plagues established was it was a reminder for Israel that God keeps his promises. Can you imagine the Israelites? Remember, they've been enslaved for 400 years. They're probably believing that's never going to change but then they get to see God work in miraculous ways. And you can imagine through each plague, their hope continues to grow because for the first time, they might start believing that God is gonna fulfill the promise that he made long ago. With each plague, they begin to grow more and more encouraged, hopeful that, wow, maybe this time is going to be different because we're seeing God work in a huge way. That God always keeps his promises. The third thing the plagues established was Moses' credibility as the leader of the nation of Israel. Israel wasn't buying Moses as their leader, and ultimately that was just a, a referendum on God. They weren't buying God, but as Israel watches God work through Moses to bring miraculous plagues, crazy and wild circumstances, they're probably seeing God establish a guy who over the next 40 years of his life, when life gets difficult and hard, they're going to turn to they're going to go to because they're going to remember all that God did through them in this moment. And so God is establishing his leader, the person who's going to guide and shepherd this nation for the next 40 years. And so the first nine plagues were crazy. They were wild. They were amazing, but they didn't get the job done. Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. He still is saying no. And so there was one more plague to come, and it would be the most devastating Exodus 11, God comes to Moses and says, Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than ever has been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So God brings a final plague, a very devastating plague that will kill every firstborn in the land. From the top of humanity to the bottom, even animals. That God's going to go through and make a clear distinction between Israel and Egypt. And the way he does it is through the instructions he gives Moses to the nation of Israel. Exodus 12, it says, On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike you. Egypt. And so God gives Moses clear instructions to the nation of Israel. Here's what you're going to do. When this plague comes, you're going to take a perfect and a spotless lamb. And you're going to sacrifice it. And you're going to take the blood of that lamb. And you're going to 
paint it on your doorframe. It will be a sign to me to pass over my judgment on that house. Now, can we just pause here and, and say, that's really weird. Okay, it's awkward. Like, hey, when you go trick-or-treating, if someone's got blood painted over the doorframe, don't get their candy, okay? <laughs> but remember, we, when we read the Bible, we, we can't view it from a 2020 lens. We can't take our culture and impress it upon biblical time culture. Because in this day and age, sacrificing animals and using their blood as sacrifices was actually a common practice. Even the Egyptians did it to their false gods. So this was very normal. It wouldn't have felt weird to them. And so God says, take this perfect spotless lamb and paint it on your doorframe. It will be the symbol for my presence to pass over that house. And when we look at this final plague, the plague that, that brings the, the most destruction, there's a couple things that, that God realized that needed to be done through this final plague. The first one is, is there was one more God that God needed to overcome. You see, all the first nine plagues, they told all of Egypt that the, the golden statues that they worshipped, the gods that they thought were real, were actually false. They weren't powerful. They couldn't do anything to stop God. He'd already overcome all the false, false images and statues. But there's still one more God that God needed to overcome. His name was Pharaoh. You see, in this culture, Pharaoh was viewed as a deity. He was a powerful man, and all of Egypt worshipped him. And guess what? He still won't let God's people go. And so this final plague is to move Pharaoh's heart. It's to change his heart, because God needs to overcome Pharaoh still. And it leads us to the second thing the final plague did is it was called Passover. And what Passover is, is it's the ultimate heart changer. This is amazing to me about Pharaoh. Is for nine plagues, he got to see the power, the sheer power and might of God. He saw God do nine miracles. I mean, things that aren't normal in, in life, like crazy things, and yet it didn't move his heart. It didn't change his heart. He wasn't willing to let go of the Israelites. But yet through the final plague, where God would actually eliminate his line, the very thing that Pharaoh did to all of Israel by killing all their males, God did to Pharaoh. And it was the actual plague, Passover, that moved Pharaoh to change his mind. Because it's the ultimate heart changer. And what we can't miss when we read this story and we look at one of the most monumentous moments in history. You see, all of Israel, as they move forward as a nation, they will come back to this moment regularly. They will celebrate how God delivers them through Passover. But this moment in history is just a setup for the greatest moment in history because we have to understand what God started at Passover, he finished at the cross. It's no accident at all that Passover takes place. Because Passover is ultimately just a picture of what Jesus Christ will come and do on our behalf. It's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's no accident that they had to kill a perfect and spotless lamb. It's no accident that the, the shedding of, of blood would be the payment that would, would be the symbol for God's presence to pass over. 
It's no accident that Jesus, thousands of years later, would die on that cross, guess when? On the festival of Passover. Jesus, when he was with his disciples right before he died, guess what he took place in? He took place in the Lord's Supper. And what he's doing is he's ultimately fulfilling commands all the way back from Exodus chapter 12. Jesus hands out the cup and he says, this blood will be a new covenant. This blood will be the blood that will be a symbol to God that when you deserve judgment and when you deserve wrath, if you're covered by the blood of Jesus, God will pass over you. It's no accident that when John the Baptist saw Jesus early on in his ministry, look what he says. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, whose blood will take away the sins of the world. See, Passover is a picture of Jesus because what what happens is what Jesus did on that cross and through his resurrection is the same thing that happened in Passover for you and I. Because every single one of us, we're sinners. The Bible's very clear. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we're all sinners, guess what we deserve? The wrath of God. The punishment from God. And yet, Jesus took that punishment for us so that you and I, through his blood, could be passed over by God. See, that's what Jesus did for us. He took the punishment that we deserve. God poured out his wrath on his only son so that you and I, when we stand before him, covered in the blood of Jesus, believing in his work and what he accomplished through his resurrection and his death, that God would spare his judgment on us that we deserve because his son took it upon his shoulders. Wow. And what that means, I think that pans out for two groups of people. For those of us today that are believers, Christians, Christ followers, disciples, we've received God's grace and his love and his mercy, and he's forgiven us of our past and our sin, and he's led us into the future. What I think when we view this story from a future perspective, what I think we must learn to do is to remember the judgment Christ's blood spared you and spared me from. Think about that for a second. God's judgment, his wrath. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have any part in that. It's not something I want to ever experience. And Jesus made a way so I don't have to, so you don't have to. And as Christ followers being spared from that, rescued and redeemed from that, man, we should wake up every day remembering what Jesus accomplished for us. And one way we're going to do that this week for you is through our community groups. We're going to take place in the Lord's Supper, an ordinance from God called communion. And Jesus clearly says, he says, when you do this, remember. Remember what my blood shed and my body that was broken did for you. So my prayer for, for me and for those of us as believers that we would remember how good the gospel is. That God spared us from the judgment that we deserved. But yet, maybe there are some of you here today that You've never received God's love and his grace that pours over you. Maybe you can relate more to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh because 
You've seen the power or the evidence of God, but your heart has never been changed by God. I think there's a lot of people like this in our culture today where they wouldn't argue that God exists, right? Because they've seen the evidence of God. Maybe they look at creation and they're like, man, there has to be something bigger than, than, than what I know. Like there has to be, there, there has to be a God who created all of this. And you actually maybe have seen God work in your friends or your family's life where he's, he's turned their life upside down. He's changed things about them that you never thought would be changed. And you see the power of God just like Pharaoh did. Pharaoh saw miracle after miracle after miracle, nine in a row of God's power and his might, the evidence of God. And he still didn't believe. His heart was still hardened. And I think the thing that changes the game for many people is not the power or the evidence or the might of God, but it's the love of God. Because when you realize that you deserved God's judgment, his wrath, and he loved you enough to pour it out on his son for you, that's a love that isn't ordinary. That's a love that most of us wouldn't live out for other people. And when you realize how much God loves you, what it does is it takes a hardened heart and it softens it. Grace and love changes the game. And maybe for you today, when you realize the love of God that has been poured over you through his son, Jesus Christ, maybe that's the very thing that will move your heart to follow him. Listen, I, I don't know where, where any of you are really personally, but I wanna give you a moment, whether you're a believer or you're not, to just talk to God. And so if you just bow your heads and close your eyes. Maybe you're a believer here today. And I would just challenge you right now in this moment to express to God your thanksgiving and your gratitude that he spared you, redeemed you. It was nothing that you did, but it, it was all his work. And would you just let him know how grateful you are for that, that you would remember and live out of that gratitude for the rest of your life? Or maybe you're here today and, and you know what, you, you know God's real. You've seen the evidence of him, but your heart hasn't been changed by him. And maybe today is the day where you, you realize how much God loves you, what he was willing to give up just to show you that. And maybe today you let that love and that grace and that mercy pour over your heart and soften it into a relationship with Jesus. Where you say in your own words, God, I'm a sinner and my sin has separated me from you. I can't fix it. It's too big for me. But God, your son's work on that cross and his resurrection set me free from that bondage. And today I'm believing in that work. I'm trusting in it and I wanna walk in a relationship with you, soften my heart towards you, God. So right now, in, in whatever words you wanna use, would you, would you do that? Thank God? Believe in him? You don't have to say the perfect recipe of words. You, you can speak to God in whatever language that you use. He knows them all. He just wants to hear from you. God, thank you. Thank you that your grace and your mercy and your love saved a sinful wretch like me. God, may I never grow old of that truth. May I always be reminded of what you spared me from and what you offer me. You didn't just save us from your wrath. You offer us life to the fullest. God, I pray if someone crossed that line of faith today that they would, they would talk to somebody, that they would surround themselves with a, a group of mentors and believers that will navigate and walk with them. 
Help us, God. It's hard. It's hard in everyday life to follow you. Help us to do that to the best of our ability. In Jesus' name, amen.